How do you feel about life on land? I'm all about the nature. As you might know, I am a farm boy. If I'm really honest, I don't believe you. Give me proof that you grew up on a farm. I can slaughter a sheep. Seriously? And chop it up and dissect the whole thing. Oh my God. You got to do it so quickly. Once the body gets too cool, it's really hard to get the skin off. What you want to do is cut the neck. (laughs) Okay, okay, stop. I believe you. And you want to open the chest cavity and get all those soft insides out as quickly as you can. Then you start working that skin and you break the legs, cut, cut those off. You skin all the way through. Have you done that? Plenty of times. That's called breakfast. Oh my God. <laughs> Hi, I'm Luisa Matinga. And I'm Gail Galley. And this is an Idiot's Guide to Saving the World, the podcast for anyone who cares about building a better world but doesn't know where to start. We are on a mission to get everyone on board to achieve the global goals. Now, there are 17 goals that the world promised to deliver by 2030. And although we are nearly halfway to the deadline, we are not halfway to achieving them. And so let's get to work on ending poverty, protecting our forests and providing clean energy for everyone. The big stuff. All the important stuff. In this episode, how can we nurture nature so that nature can nurture us? I think I say that when you're drunk. Morning. (laughs) (laughs) We're joined today by the environmental activist Archana Soreng, who advises the UN Secretary General Antonio Guterres, no less, about why we should implement indigenous knowledge. The nature is giving us shelter, the nature is giving us food, the nature is giving us medicine, and the nature is also giving us blessing. And we also speak with one of the world's leading conservationists, Gerardo Ceballos, about why humanity should care about endangered species. Unfortunately, what we find out is that we have entered the sheep mass extinction. In other words, we're losing so many species of plants and animals. If we continue losing all these species of plants and animals, all these ecosystems, uh, we could face collapse. When I first met you in the flesh, you were all pressed, wearing white clothes in a cafe in Lisbon. I really did not have you as a sheep slaughterer. No, no. I just got myself a GQ magazine and I was like, I'm going to go with whatever looks are in season. And I fit in and can. So that's what you saw. <laughs> Otherwise, it's me, my loincloth and the switchblade, really. <laughs> How's that working for you in Manhattan? <laughs> now I'm on the back foot. I'm going to have to start bragging about badges in my garden or something. <laughs> it's like, I have got nothing on sheep slaughtering. We have flipped. You live in a world where you're talking about your missing badges or your hedgehogs. Like, you're fully in the wild more than I am. It's winter and they're missing those sounds of nature that you play in the background. No, the, well, the actual birds, you mean, <laughs> that I actually play in the actual, in the actual birds trees. In the yeah. background. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 I did. Oh, it talk about winter and hedgehogs, though. I heard this crazy story today about yet another example of humans messing with the natural world. There's a hedgehog shortage in England. So people have been putting out like big chunks of high protein food to attract the hedgehogs back. Anyway, turns out that messes with stuff because it makes the hedgehogs behave badly. They roll up and they like kamikaze attack (laughs) any other creatures that are coming out for the protein balls that the well-meaning gardeners have been doing. But the only animals that are like resistant to them are the badgers who just swipe them. But apparently cats are being attacked by hedgehogs because the cats come, they don't know what to do with them because they're so useless. And the hedgehogs like bomb them, (laughs) taking out the cats. And that's because humans are messing. So we need to stop doing that. Anyone who's doing that, stop doing it. That's a hard thing too. Like, how do you reintroduce without causing, you know, nature does it more 
it's always better when nature does it. Where I grew up, we're missing this thing called a blister beetle. Blister beetles are always, they were just like my sign that spring is really on the way, the plants are flowering, but they disappeared. They've gone. I haven't seen those in a while. Hardy dars are no longer where I grew up and that used to be a bird I saw all the time. It's just scary to think like, you know, you remove one species from an environment. It's not just that thing gone, it's everything connected to it. So you got to wonder what's happening to the other creatures that depended on it. Totally. And then the things you can't even see. Like I heard a, an indigenous activist recently speaking about the Amazon basin and because the water table is too low, the fish aren't laying the eggs. Oof. And if the fish don't lay the eggs and there aren't the baby fish, then all the creatures that feed off the fish in the Amazon don't have anything to eat. So they die. You know, and you, you don't see that unless you're measuring it. And the link between how we live and what's happening in the natural world, I think, is a story that needs to get out there more as well. So, you know, the products you buy, the the way you treat your own garden, the way you can kind of bring your own little bit of nature back, it all counts because little actions are actually what we need. Little, diverse, mm. locally relevant actions, as well as big action to stop pesticides and stop monoculture like when we just farm one thing like one thing over for thousands of over acres until the earth cannot give anymore and it's it's a really it is the most destructive way of farming because things only work when it is that complex system of a number of fauna and flora acting together so when you introduce this one plant of any sort or one animal of any sort it's only destructive yeah i mean this goal this goal is called life on land and it's about biodiversity I've also heard a phrase recently, biocomplexity. That's what we should all be seeking, whether it's what you eat and what you buy, therefore, what you do with your garden, biocomplexity. Because the more complex it is, the more nature can work and do the job it's meant to do. Exactly. A handful of soil has more microbial um, matter in it than the entire population of the world. Yes. Complexity is, is really the word when we're trying to get back to you know, this whole saving the the planet thing, because that's why we're like these 17 goals that don't operate on their own, do they? It's the complexity of making them all work in harmony with each other. 100%. I mean, one cannot stand without another. That is the brilliant thing about the goal wheel. You know, you can't have a good food system if you haven't got a healthy biosphere. Uh. You, know, you can't have clean water, number six, if you don't have proper checks in place for life on land and life below water. You know, if you don't have good education, goal number four, people aren't going to know this stuff. You know, you're never going to get to be scientists. Yeah. You know, the whole wheel works together as, as a system, just like nature, just like nature. Thank goodness we've got scientists like Dr. Gerardo Ceballos, who really knows what he's talking about when it comes to species, the interconnectivity of it all, and the real risk of causing the next mass extinction when it comes to what we're doing to the natural world. Gerardo Ceballos, welcome to the podcast. Thank you very much, Kev. Very nice to be here with you. Thanks for joining us. I'm also here, Gerardo. Please acknowledge acknowledge my voice. Thank you. Sorry about that. (laughs) And for those of us who don't know you, can you introduce yourself and tell us a little bit about the work you focus on? Yes, I am uh, Dr. Gerardo Ceballos. I work at the National University of Mexico. I basically do uh, uh, basic science on ecology and conservation. But I also work more in the theoretical part of understanding the impact of extinctions on the function of ecosystems and human well-being. That's a very big business card again. You sound very important. <laughs> well, it, I mean, it is quite big, isn't it? You're trying to stop what has been described as the sixth mass extinction. I mean, that's a pretty big job. That is a big job. 
Well, yes, uh, what we're trying to do, uh, a few of my colleagues and I, first of all, is to understand the magnitude of extinction. And we had basically come out with the, the hypothesis that we have entered the six mass extinction. That's basically in the last 600 million years, uh, there has been six massive loss of a species that we call mass extinctions. And basically, this is a, in a simple way, losing 70 or more percent of all the species in the planet very rapidly in a, a geological terms caused by a, a natural catastrophe. And the last one that we all know is the extinction of the dinosaurs 65 million years ago, where a big meteorite hit the, the planet. So around 2000, 2005, we start to, to look at how bad the magnitude of the current extinction crisis was. And unfortunately, what we find out is that we have entered the six mass extinction. In other words, we're losing so many species of plants and animals that this starts to equal the losses in the previous five mass extinction. The difference in this particular case is this is caused by us. Mm. If we continue losing all these species of plants and animals, all these ecosystems, uh, we could face collapse of civilization because we get so many important uh, ecosystem services, ecosystem benefits from the well uh, function of nature. When nature works properly, we get these benefits for free. The combination of the gases of the atmosphere proper for uh, life on Earth is one of those. Drinking water for us and for animals, the fertilization of all the soils, the pollination of 70% of the crops that we use, it is an ecosystem service. So we're destroying the very basic fabric of the planet that allows to have life in general and to have human life in particular. It's so massive, isn't it, when you when you put it so simply. And I'm sure I'm not alone. I can't quite wrap my head around it. And also, I suffer from a desire to do something stupid. Like what popped into my head there was like a turtle picking up the phone going, hello, ecosystem services, ready with all of your air, <laughs> gas and water needs. It's so telling how your mind works. That's so great. It is, I, because I cannot really ground myself in the reality. Yeah. Uh, Gerard, do you think people have got their head around it? I think that phrase that you started using, the sixth mass extinction, has been very, very influential, hasn't it? Because it has begun to get people to take it seriously. But do you get the, do you get the sense that the people you meet in the run of your work have really wrapped their head around it? Well, uh, no. Most of the people, including scientists, don't really realize until very recently that this is a, a massive problem. But... Uh, we, we were in Montreal last uh, December, and basically the backbone of the whole conference was a species extinction, the extinction prices. So that's very good that in very few years, we have been able to influence the scientific and the conservation community in terms of uh, they start to understand better. Now, going to the general public and to the people taking uh, the decisions, the politicians, the corporations, and so on, unfortunately, we're far, far away from them to understand that we're in extinction prices that is uh, of a planetary magnitude and it is uh, an existential threat, you know, the extinction crisis touches every single aspect of society. Basically, if we lose all these species, all these ecosystems, there is no way we can cope with climate change and all the other problems. So the good news is that we still have some time and there are many things going on at this, at this moment that in all the arenas, the social, the political, and the economic arenas, that may get us in a better shape in the next in decades. 
The bad news is that the window of opportunity is rapidly closing. I'm glad you mentioned Montreal. People will have heard of the COP, you know, the, the Glasgow one, and then it was in Egypt, and now it's going to be in Dubai this year. That's for energy. But the Montreal COP was the one for nature, in effect. And it got a result, right? This, this, it, we signed, the, the international community signed a deal, 30 by 30. Can you unpack that for us and tell us why it's good news? Well, the, the, the uh, meeting in Montreal was incredibly important. They say 30 by 30 is a putting 30% of all the land of every country into conservation by the 2030. And basically, everybody there understands that 30 by 30 is like the medium that we can do. So what is good about it, it is uh, that it has metrics and it has uh, uh, specific goals. So the first step is to get the land into conservation. And the second part will be to really have those lands properly managed. And for instance, if it's a tropical forest, the only restriction is you cannot convert it into agriculture or pasture. But you can do many things, things like uh, forestry, honey harvesting, hunting, and so many of things that can be compatible with conservation. That's so interesting. The idea of conservation sometimes sounds like leaving nature alone. And it's how do we actually integrate in a positive way into that 30%. Exactly. It doesn't mean that we cannot touch it. It means that we cannot destroy it. Uh. We can use it in such a way that we maintain the structure and the function of the ecosystem and that we can maintain the provision of uh, ecosystem services. There are many ways that are already being uh, 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 tested. So let me give you this example. In southern Mexico, the government can decree a protected area only if the local owners accept it. We don't displace the people. The people keep on living there and paying them ecosystem services so they protect the land for the next 90 years. And then whatever happened after 90 years, I think should we take care of whoever is in the planet at that time. I won't be here, I hope. So anyway, <laughs> and uh, if you think in one of the, go the goals is reducing poverty, what best way to reduce poverty in those areas by uh, empowering local people so they can benefit from the resources without destroying them? So, Gerardo, you and I met because we are teaming up, aren't we, on something. We're trying something different for the environment. We have a new venture called Creatures United that you are sort of chief scientist of. And we're trying to engage these billions of individual citizens. And we're using all the tricks, are we, of the games industry, the social media and comedy and uh, animation. Can you want to tell us a little bit about that? Yes. Now, well, we have been thinking that the extinction problem is basically a communication problem. I mean, the government, the corporations, the individuals, they don't know, first of all, that there is an extinction crisis and they don't know well, what can we do to solve it. So we got together new movement we call Creatures United. On the one hand, our goals are very ambitious. We want to help, say, 100 million hectares of tropical forests in the next uh, decade even before. And then we want to uh, help to, to say one million species. So it will be some a campaign, a massive global campaign. And uh, we want to reach 4 billion people to broadly publicize the problem, like uh, what is happening with the Amazon forest and what we should save it. And what other areas are not as well publicized as the Amazon, but need to be saved. And then Creatures United will channel uh, the donations or revenues to the most important places to be protected on the planet. 
Herodo, the other great thing that you are using to underpin creatures is this um, sort of dashboard about how we're doing in the natural world. Can you give us a bit of an understanding of that? Yes. Uh, well, just imagine you can go to this map. You see the map of the planet. You can ask the, the, the uh, database, say, okay, show me the distribution of all the species in the planet. And you will see the distribution of all the mammals, all the birds, all the reptiles, all the amphibians. And it will tell you if the species is in them, you know. And eventually, our goal, and this is very ambitious and it's very important, is that we will have in the next three or four years the distribution of all the animals and plants in the world. Wow. So let's see that you're a citizen in Chad and you say, well, there were, were very few species in Chad. What we should protect? You can click it and then it will give you the map of Chad and we will tell you what are the most important areas in Chad for protected species. Or in the United States or the UK or wherever. And eventually, we will be able to see in real time what's going on in some of these places through cameras set in the forest. So basically, we are on the road to have one of the most powerful uh, tools for conservation. It's going to be very, very interesting. We've got to integrate. We, 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 that's what it is. It's like, because we're part of it, everything that we do matters. So, you know, how do we act in a way that doesn't, you know, adversely affect this, this, this beautiful thing that we are already a part of? You can touch the nature, just don't destroy it. How do we do that? It's beautiful. And I really love how he says that we still have time. We just got to do. Yes. The window's closing, but it's still open, said one thief to the other. <laughs> and I, I liked, he was unpacking that 30 by 30 deal that got struck at the COP in Montreal before Christmas. It doesn't seem too much to ask, does it? Let's just protect 30% of it by 2030. So we've got seven years to say that 30% of the surface of the earth is either protected ocean or protected land. But then we also have the indigenous people who, frankly, they're tiny percentage of the global population, but they are in charge of 80% of the world's biodiversity. So I'm really pleased we've got a representative from that community on the show today too. In our worldview, we are not mere part of nature. We are nature. Nature is a source of identity, culture, tradition, and language. In our worldview, in our way of living, in our way of governance and institutions, we have been contributing towards biodiversity conservation and climate action even before these terminologies existed. My name is Archana Sorenk. I belong to Khadiyad tribe, an indigenous community from India. And the meaning of my surname in my Khadiyad tribe means rock. So I'm here standing still like a rock, advocating for indigenous communities. And I also work as a researcher on rights of indigenous people and local communities. And I'm member of UN Secretary General's Youth Advisory Group on Climate Change bringing the perspective of young people in terms of climate crisis and solution in terms of climate action. So what I'm so fascinated listening to you talk, what was your childhood like? How did you go from being a child to a leader like you are now? 
what i saw in my childhood was like we used to have food in leaf plates and these leaf plates were made by my aunts my grandmothers my uncles and my grandfathers used to go to agriculture lands and they used to take water bottles made up of pumpkins or bottle gourds and similarly we used to go uh, to pluck fruits and get forest produce during all the seasons many of these kind of things which i had seen from my childhood was very sustainable and eco friendly practices which was there and the second is comes down to like world view we have to take care of nature as child because the nature is taking care of us the nature is giving us shelter the nature is giving us food the nature is giving us medicine and the nature is also giving us blessing and then how we have been engaging in terms of protection of the forest because in the summer season when there is dried leaves there's a chances of getting forest fires so who will take the responsibility of preventing it also i'll just sum up this journey and say that i lost my father when i was doing my masters which made me reflect i realized a lot of things which i told you i read it in the literature but uh, this is not written by our community and that's why i realized there's a need of engaging in the spaces and having the opportunity of accessing education i really wanted to contribute back to my communities in terms of research advocacy and most importantly voice out the perspective and the practices of communities who are contributing towards climate action but barely are being heard or seen in the spaces. That's a really interesting how you bring up the idea of both the indigenous and the more literary knowledge coming together. In your work and in your community, what kind of threats are you guys facing or have you faced and that need both of these to be integrated in a way to find a solution? There has been such inferiorization of our culture our tradition our language it has led to huge identity crisis amongst people and communities and it is only now slowly the world is recognizing the role of indigenous people culture tradition and language second i think it's extractive developmental projects has been a threat to indigenous people local communities this has led to displacement this has led to uh, migration and this is also preventing them to contribute to climate action as they were doing earlier the third thing which i think is really important at this when we talk about threat is gross human rights violation it's really important to prioritize safety and protection of environmental human rights defenders and that has to be taken into consideration in all types and kinds people see things in isolation land rights forest rights indigenous people's rights is all intrinsically related with climate action indigenous people should be leaders of climate action and not victims of climate policies we need leadership and representation in this policy making spaces and discourse yeah it's so interesting listening to you speak there ajana because when we think about life on land we're often talking about the plants the soil the animals and yet listening to you it's so important to not also forget the people in the nature 
and the fact that it is you people who need the support and the respect, as you say, and need to get your stories out there, passed down from your generations so that we can engage in the people. And it made me think about community. And I think that has two levels, doesn't it? It has your literal community, your tribe, your ancestral lands, but also this global community of Indigenous people, which I see, having worked in this space now for about seven years, more and more, whether it's the youth activists get, get together, but increasingly I'm feeling the Indigenous peoples from all over the world acting as a community. Have you found that? Is that really important to join forces, do you feel? This uh, question brings a smile on my face because first time when I attended the international conference was on United Nations um, Convention on Combating Desertification, which was in New Delhi, India, which was COP14. And that was the first time I uh, I attended the Youth Summit um, and I got an opportunity to meet young people from different um, regions and indigenous people. I got so much love and support from my friends from Africa, from Latin America. So what I realized is that indigenous communities across globe have similar demands, have similar issues and ways of contribution. It may differ in degrees and kinds, but the worldview is the same, that our relationship with nature is linked with identity, culture and tradition. So I felt a strong sense of community and strong sense of advocacy there, which also made me believe that no matter where I am, I am not alone. That is beautiful. I'm like, it is grooting work that you... <laughs> that you're doing, you're working hard, you know, not to only to be heard, but also like indigenous knowledge to be implemented. So the IPCC has recognized that, you know, we need to include indigenous people and their knowledge when coming up with policy uh, for climate change. But like, what is some of the advice you'd like to actually see being implemented ASAP? If we see the climate action discourse, one of the strongest way of getting it implemented is national level. Even though we have these policies being made at global level, international levels, countries agreeing uh, and ratifying it, the countries need to incorporate in their NDCs, which is nationally determined contributors, which is as per the Paris Agreement, to incorporate rights of indigenous people over the land, forests and territories, ensure that they are part of the adaptation, mitigation and resilience policy. And second thing which I also want to say is like we all are talking about transition into renewable energy. It's important. But it's also important to see that how are we doing it in a justice-oriented way, which is like just transition. Because there has been numerous instances where we see that solar um, energy is leading to displacement of communities. Why indigenous communities and local communities will be the one who is bearing the brunt of this? To do this right, it is very important to, you know, uh, take them into consultation, respect their rights and ensure that they are not further marginalized. And another example which I would like to give is like, how do we also plan it in a precautionary way which is again has to do more in terms of mitigation like for example plantation drives we are seeing mitigation and plantation as one of the very important thing once i had been to field area talking with indigenous elders i asked them how are you and how things have been in the village so they're like no we are protesting i said why are you protesting they said no uh, they had come to plant trees 
So I said, okay, what trees had they brought to plant? They said that they had brought fruit trees. So I was like, okay, fruit trees, what's the problem? They said that they had brought jackfruit trees and mango trees for plantation. And uh, if they plant jackfruit trees and mango trees in the periphery of the village, the wild animals will come to eat jackfruit and mango trees and will destroy the agriculture crops in the periphery of the village. And that's why we don't want fruit trees. And that's why we want other trees, which is salt trees. And this also took me aback as a huge learning that even if I am indigenous, even if they are indigenous, I don't know this context. That's why it's really important that the policy needs to be grassroots oriented. They need to be part of the process because they know the ecosystem well. And that's which again brings back to my narrative that if mitigation policies are not done in a proper way, they are making it more vulnerable to them. We were just having a chat before you joined about this, yeah. about um, humans taking action, but the wrong actions if they're misinformed. So we were just saying in England, there's a situation about people overfeeding hedgehogs. To, to bring them back, but that makes the hedgehogs more vicious and the hedgehogs then attack everything else. You know, it's like the wrong kind of trees, like you were just saying. And it's lovely when you hear the detail from someone who knows it, like yourself, about how granular and local the action has to be to get it right. And the people who understand that are the Indigenous peoples who've been doing it for years. What would you say to the listeners of this podcast, most of whom I'm thinking will probably not be Indigenous, what can they do to help? First is love, respect and solidarity. It's so important to realize that there are communities who have different worldviews, different way of living, and we need to love them. Even if we have difference of opinion and different of narratives and journey. And the other thing which comes across is like, how can we do that? I think making yourself aware, engaging in research, building your own communities in terms of learning processes. The second thing which I feel is really important is support in terms of campaigns. When there are being campaigns led by indigenous people, then we can support by amplifying their voice. We can support by giving them the stage, passing the mic. And now, the most important thing, it's really important to also support Indigenous people in terms of finance allocation. And for example, if I am in a market and if you see that Indigenous people's product has been uh, built by them, which is eco-friendly and sustainable, then we can make a choice that we can purchase from localized Indigenous communities. There should not be appropriation of Indigenous knowledge without giving them credit, appropriation of their commodities made by them without giving them credit. It all comes down to basic love, respect and solidarity. And these are the other ways we can do. But I think the most bare minimum thing which you can do is like is speaking up. Well, that's interesting, isn't it? It's not very often, oh, I don't anyway, hear Indigenous Indian voices. It was so nice to hear her talk about the community of Indigenous people from all over the world. I also really, really liked her story about the wrong kind of trees. Mm, I really like uh. her point is macro, which is local global policy has to be translated locally, which has to go right down to the grassroots. But then she really brings it alive by well-meaning people turning up with trees to plant. But ah, those trees are going to get the wrong wildlife that's going to crash the biodiversity. You know, it's so important, isn't it, to get the detail right? 
Yeah, it goes back to the thing of that, that love, that caring. You have to care enough to actually go there and actually find out what they need instead of just, you know, let's put out a policy because that's that's what I got to clock in today between eight and five. You know, it's like, all right, if I want to help, I, I have to go there and listen. It goes down to the specificity of what each community needs. The nature goal more than any other just proves to me that I'm right to be messy. The world is messy, right? The world is complicated. <laughs> we have a mania in the West with tidying it up, boxing it off, global policy for this, um, implement it globally. It's not like that. You know, we need mess and we need complexity. And that's nature. That's nature. Nature is messy. I mean, like we look at it and like it's a symphony. No, nature allows itself to be messy. And until we, we're willing to play in the squiggly lines and not the, you know, Excel spreadsheet of life, we'll keep struggling. Today was such a great learning day. I think today is going to be the hardest 30-second wrap-up we do because there's, there's so much to throw at it. Okay, three seconds for nature. Three, two, one. Educate yourself and amplify the voices of the indigenous people who take care of the nature already every day. Accept that nature is messy and complicated, but we've just got to try. Yeah, just try. And support Creatures United, Gerardo's organization. Yeah, and also support ecosystem services. Hello, how can I help? <laughs> just think that for nature every day. How can I help? Uh, so plant lots of flowers, indigenous flowers, because it just goes right back into the ecosystem that already exists. Uh, yeah, stop feeding hedgehogs too much because they'll kill the other animals. <laughs> That's my favorite one. Stop it. <laughs> In whatever way you want to help, remember, get specific. Learn, learn, learn. Oh. It's so important. That's it. Time's up. But if you want to find out more, go to globalgoals.org and click on Goal 15, where you will find a whole load more great tips on how to get involved. Well, that's me, Luisa Matinga, signing off. And that's me, Gail Galley. See you next week. An Idiot's Guide to Saving the World is an Audi production made in collaboration with Project Everyone. The producers were Yolene Goffin and Eli Block. Project Everyone's producer is Ali Winter-Taylor. It was edited and sound designed by Ivor Manley. And the executive producer is Ellie DiMartino. If you like what you heard, please subscribe, share on your socials and leave a review. It really helps other people find us. And the more people find us, the more people there are saving the world. Saving the world.